Hey, this is Channing. And this is Leah. And you've reached Vessel, Art as a Doorway. Welcome to episode six. Hey guys, we want to thank you so much for listening into this podcast, Vessel Art as a Doorway. We feel very excited uh, despite everything that's going on in the world today. Um, we see some really good positive things happening. One thing that actually happened last week was we were interviewed by Paul Blades of the Potter's Cast. If you'd like to listen into that interview, we'll have the details in the show's notes, or you can find the Potter's Cast at any podcast, whatever you like to use, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, you can find it there. We've been waiting a long time for you to hear this fascinating interview we have with a wonderful individual today. Yeah, Brian Bender is such an amazing musician, sound engineer. He's like a DJ and scientist all mixed in one. And we really felt strongly that he led into this discussion on art and the brain. And as accomplished of a musician as he is, in addition to him playing five instruments, he does all kinds of different things when it comes to sounds and music. One of the things he does is, you know, when you're watching a really great movie and you're on this emotional roller coaster and you get in these goosebumps, he is the guy that crafts the sounds that make us feel that way. That's just one of the things he does. He does a lot of things, but that's just one of them. So it was really fascinating to talk to him and find out what he does and how he approaches creating that emotion in the form of sound. And stay tuned to the end of his interview because Bender is working on a really exceptional project. And we know that once you get to know him, it'll really help you to appreciate how special this project he is that he's working on. Let's listen into this interview with Brian Bender. We have Brian Bender with us, people. Uh, Thank you. Welcome to the show, Brian. It is an absolute honor to have you on this show, Brian. Just to explain some of the things that Brian has done, Brian is a composer, a mixer, producer, engineer, people. Let me just tell you some of the things that he's actually been working with. Have you ever heard of some of these things? Big Eyes, El Chapo, The Dinner, Three Generations, Ottoman, Rise of the Empire, When They See Us, instead of eugenics, but the list goes on. Brian is an amazing musician, and we're just so happy to have Brian on the podcast. We were just talking. We just realized that actually we met like back in October or November. We were actually doing the still life uh, class together. We were throwing at the wheel, taking a wheel class. Right. I remember seeing you on the side, you know, in my peripheral. And I think we were, we did the first three weeks on the wheel. So man, it is an absolute honor to have you with us. Um, my pleasure, you know, absolutely. People, you're going to learn a lot about Brian. You're going to learn about the interior of Brian, how he uh, developed his style, his passion, um, he has such an interesting uh, dynamic when it comes to music, and I enjoy his music. I played some of his music for Leah for the first time, and what did you say, babe? She said, let's get it. 
<laughs> it was amazing, That's and um, you know, man, you know, you know, we're we're just honored to have you with That's us. That's absolutely man. my pleasure, man. And, and, and thank you for bearing with us, man. When it comes to the uh, technical forget difficulties, I, I know all Pe- about that. People, this is one of our first interviews that we're interviewing. I guess we could say a celebrity. Yeah, you couldn't. You cannot. You absolutely cannot. No, no, no. Uh, so, so Brian is in the building. Uh, Brian, could you give us a little background of where you're from and what you do? Yeah. So, like you said, I'm a producer, mixer, composer, engineer, musician, um, technician. If it goes wrong, um, I'm from Bloomington, Indiana, originally. Uh, I grew up and did my undergrad there. Actually, Bloomington has one of the ten best music schools in the world, randomly enough. And it was like Indiana in-state tuition, so I just stuck around. Got to learn from David Baker, the, the gentleman that I was telling you about. And then uh, directly after undergrad, I moved to Brooklyn. And then I did 10 years in New York. Uh, my first job in, in New York City was working for Philip Glass at his studio, Looking Glass. Um, then I bounced to the Hit Factory for a minute. Then I bounced back to Looking Glass. And then I went to Electric Lady Studios and got to work with the mixer, producer, Russell Elevato, who did Mama's Gun and Voodoo and all those like great neo-soul records from the early 2000s. So how is it, Brian, that, that, that you got into uh, music and the arts? Um, yeah, well, so, yeah, I think it was Baker, actually. Because uh, like I said, in, in Bloomington, his uh, they had, first of all, every Monday they had a free jazz big band concert every week. And like that was just something that was like a part of my childhood. It was just music around, like beautiful, brilliant, world-class musicians all around giving free concerts. Um, and importantly, the jazz band came to my elementary school and, you know, they did some something amazing. And this guy's like one of the best jazz pedagogues in the country. So his band was ridiculous. And like, yeah, that just that just did it. That, that was what that was what made me knew that I wanted to be a performer of some stripe. Um, and my dad actually was really into music also, but not as a performer, as a listener. So one of the things that we used to do to bond together was like go to the record store in the mall, you know, <laughs> Bloomington, Indiana, Sam Goody in like That's 1984 cool, or something. Wow. And uh, I remember I was like five years old and he was, he unleashed me on the story. He's like, all right, go pick one out for yourself. And so I have no idea how it came, how I came by this record, but the record that I chose was Hard Again by Muddy Waters. Yeah. Which Whoa. was his like 1978 comeback record. It was like Amazing. a little bit more Chicago blue style. It's just yeah. a picture of him on the cover. <laughs> And I, that was what my like five-year-old self was about. I was like, that's that's what I'm about. <laughs> and so the first song on that record, of course, is Manish Boy, which, you know, he's like, he shouts out when I was a young man about the age of five. Like, I was like, this record is about me, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. So that, I think that those two things were like instrumental in my sort of early love for music. And then, yeah, just at the earliest opportunity in public school in Indiana, I, I took band, you know, starting, I mean, you, you like, they make you play recorder and stuff, but like in seventh grade, they actually are like, if you want to play a musical instrument, you can. So I was like, get me in there. Let me add it. Let me get a bass. And uh, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. Oh, the rest is history. <laughs> people, people, people. We were just talking off the cuff ahead of time, and he was telling us a little bit about his background going through college. Uh, could you uh, tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So initially, like I said, my my primary interest was in being a performer. I wanted to be a capital B bass player and like try to you know shoehorn my way into that two percent of level of talent that like actually can work. You know, and uh, you know, I think in in high school I was pulled to a magnet school when I was a kid so I got so far ahead of all the requirements that by the time I was like a sophomore or junior in high school I just had like four four totally open study periods so I was taking jazz improv class
classes and just practicing six or eight hours a day and like really putting my whole foot into that boot. But when I got to college at that point, they didn't actually have a, a performance degree for double bass for jazz performance. So I, what had previously, I had all my bow stuff had just been like for intonation, just like samandal, like real basic work just to kind of make your, make a little bit more a whole, whole bass player. But then I needed to start playing, you know, ensemble pieces or solo work and stuff like that. And I just was like practicing six, eight hours a day and ended up uh, blowing out my wrist. I got a ganglion cyst in my right wrist from bad practice technique and just had to totally stop. Um, And I had already been like my obsession has always been hip hop from when I was a kid. So like I had already been messing around with Fruity Loops and Acid. And I remember when Reason One came out and that was the new hotness. And so I had already been doing that stuff anyway. And I realized that there was a, a degree program in the music school that I was already in for audio technology. So I got my degree, I got a bachelor of science in audio technology. And one of the exit requirements was an internship in the field. And I, I was clocked by the professors as a lifer. So they were kind enough to link me up with a IU alum that was like in the field and doing well. So they introduced me to this guy, Mark Plotty, who, like I told you, is a legend. He's like produced records for David Bowie and he's worked with Prince. And I'm always struck by the fact that he has like a fat boy's gold record (laughs) in his bathroom because I remember renting Disorderlies on VHS many times. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like. I'm about it. Yeah. Golden age hip hop <laughs> trivia. Like I got you. Yeah. So yeah. So he, he just clocked me also. Like we had a very chill brunch at Cafe Mogador in the East Village and he just felt me out and he was like, all right, you seem cool. Like I'll link you up. So then he got me the job working for Philip Glass. Awesome. Awesome. And so after working with Philip Glass, you know, what, what are some of the opportunities that that have come up uh, since that that introduction? Well, I mean, that Mark really set the stage for everything that's happened thereafter, right? I probably wouldn't have got the gig. So, he, I mean, I have him to thank for my first two jobs and in, in not in a amorphous way. And then, we, you know, we've made work together thereafter, too. Like, he's mixed records that I've produced. I've engineered records that he's produced. So he's, you know, mentor and peer and friend as well. Like, we stay in touch. He's, he's good people. It's, it's really interesting to see how relationships, you know, can uh, can get started and the, the catalyst that can happen afterwards, I think. You That's know. right. Yeah. You know, one of the things I was thinking about, a lot of people, you know, we, we talked about how you're a mixer, you're a producer, you're an engineer, but I don't really think people really can appreciate exactly what it is that you're doing. And I know <laughs> for you... It may seem basic, but, I know, but, I get but, but, but for some of our audience, they, they may not even really have a, a, a true appreciation of what it is that you do. Like, yeah. You know, we, 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 we rattled off like some of these movies like El Chapo, Mars Operation, Big Eyes. It's um, funny, like for each one of those projects, I'm doing a different thing also, which is the funny thing, too. Like it can be it's been a little interesting historically for me to try to quantify what I do to people even inside of my engagement because I have done so many things like for El Chapo we were the sound designers so we were actually literally like placing gunshots or carbides or doing all the cloth and foley and all that kind of stuff we were doing the dialogue edit so I I have a good friend and one of my best friends in the world is also my creative partner in a lot of these endeavors and so he and I were working on that show together so I'm doing all the dialogue edit effects design and placing those kind of effects and then we you know smash our two pro tool sessions together and it was a tv show (laughs) but like for big eyes for example um that was one of the first gigs that i got when i got out here it was a a friend of mine was 
E uh, before all that stuff went down with Harvey. And uh, he basically was kind of the like rogue agent problem solver for all things musical. Like we did a bunch of trailers and specifically for Big Eyes, they have um, they had four pieces of music that Tim wanted in the film. And they got, the, so there are two licenses that you need to obtain in order to do that. You need to get the publishing license, which is the intellectual property of the song itself, the idea of the song. And then you need to get the mechanical license, which is the recorded piece of work. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, the idea of the song and then it gets recorded. And then like, you know, John Lennon, John Lennon sits down and writes Imagine at a piano, writes it out as a piece of sheet music. That's the published work. And then he records it. That's the mechanical. Mm-hmm. So you have to get both licenses in order to sync a piece of music into a film. They got the license for the publishing. The mechanical was going to be half again as much. So they cleared a budget a tenth the size. And my buddy, he's, you know, he was in Miles Davis's band. He's like toured with Alanis Morissette. He knows everybody. So he called like the two of the people who were in Arsenio Hall's band, who were also on the last Michael Jackson tour and John Legend drummer and like some heavy jazz hitters from USC and like, we just like remade all of it. Mm. So you get the publishing license, so that's legal to do. And because we have the publishing license, we can try to go note perfect for the original arrangement. So it became my job basically to take these arrangements that he had done and record them and mix them and process them in such a way that they sounded identical to the original. And some of these pieces of music, I mean, one of them was like, I Got You, I Feel Good by James Brown. Like that's like an iconic piece of music. And like what's iconic about it is James. So how do you do that? So like, right. You literally like actually, what do you do? So they randomly enough, like one of Darren homies knew this dude in Las Vegas who was like a James Brown impersonator. So he drove down from Vegas and was like chilling in his car until we were ready for him, you know? So that was a super random gig. And they, one of the other things that we did for that was this Quincy Jones big band uh, arrangement of Monin, the classic Blakey Messengers tune. And this particular recording, the articulation was so particular. They were really like really swinging it in a weird way. Ba-ba-dee-bee-ya-boo-da. And they just didn't articulate Whoa, that it. That sounds amazing. Yeah. They just, it's great. It's a great recording and quite iconic. But um, the, when we recorded it, they just missed that. They just kind of played it like a little bit more perfunctorily like you would if you were reading out of the real book and had played that song a million, billion times in undergrad, you know. And so that one pinged for Tim and like they ended up not not allowing it to go through. And then we're listening to this recording together. Me and, and my homie was producing the session and he was like, man, I don't know what it is. This is perfect. Their writing is great. And I was like, well, listen to the articulation. So I went there's a, a mode in Pro Tools called Tab to Transients when you can locate to the next like transient attack of something you know a a drum for example there's a big transient when you strike it there's like a big peak Mm -hmm. and then it decays quickly so that's what a transient is just a big peak of energy that dies quickly so pro tools has a mode where it will automatically scan for those you can just hit a button to go to the next one so i tabbed to transients through this whole piece of music and found the articulation in the stereo and then reconformed the recording that we had made so that it was articulated and had the same tempo variations as the original. And then we got it through Then it got approved. So people, <laughs> this guy sounds like a scientist. And so, yeah, that's really interesting to me. So it's like not only, you know, you have the ability to compose and 
make music, but you understand music so to where even if somebody is playing the exact notes, you understand all the nuances that's right. that will make a difference. And really, that's kind of one of the things that we were talking about before is the emotion. Exactly. And when you have to play back some of those songs, especially for a movie, that's really fascinating that all of those little details that a lot of times we may not think about, but we would miss it if it wasn't there. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And like, especially for sound likes for something like this, that's something that people have like built an emotional relationship to in through their real lives, Mm -hmm. you know? So when you hear a a dude not really doing James Brown, it like immediately registers. You're like that, that is not an Oreo cookie. (laughs) I don't know why that's not an Oreo cookie, but it tastes wrong. Right. You know? Well, like a Starburst. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's a Hydrox, not an Oreo. (laughs) You know? That's awesome. So, so I know we talked about some things and I, I don't know if it's legal for you to actually talk about some of the projects oh, yeah. that, 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 you've, that you've been working on. But if you could, like, could you maybe tell us some things maybe that we didn't even maybe mention some projects that you're working on or things that you're, you're really excited about? Gosh, yeah, there's so much stuff. I don't know where to start. So my partner, Dennis, that I was telling you about my, my creative partner, mm-hmm. Dennis Julian, he and I have a musical project now, and we've started releasing our own music under the name Bright and Guilty, which I'm incredibly excited about. This is 38 could, years old. Could you could you repeat that? Yeah, what, what was Bright that? and Guilty. It's an Orson Welles quote. It's, awesome. it's about L.A. Love it. Yeah, it's a bright Love and guilty it, place. <laughs> So we're, you know, like I said, I'm a hip hop kid. So it's like kind of beathead material, but like very psychedelic and a little future. He's like a European dude. So he's kind of on the future dance wave in a way. And like we just have like a whole huge Venn diagram of overlap and then a whole huge Venn diagram of stuff that I mess with that he doesn't mess with and vice versa. You know, like he got me a Kings of Convenience record and I put him on to Tony Braxton. Oh, <laughs> <man>. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. So that's really exciting. Um, me and Jose James and his wife, Talia Billig, have started a record label, which I'm really excited about. Uh, Jose is a recording artist and a, a jazz singer. I think one of the voices of our generation He's an incredible singer and a dear friend. And uh, awesome. yeah, sorry, what were you going to say? I, I looked up Jose James and I was just, you know, checking out some of his stuff. I actually put his record into my iTunes folder as soon as it was going to drop. I wanted to be. <laughs> That's love so, right there. You know, Appreciate I, you. You know, hey, man. That matters man. to our distributors. One, they watch that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> number one fanboy. <laughs> Appreciate uh, you, man. That record just went to number one in Japan on amazing. jazz. Yeah, I'm stoked amazing. on that. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we're getting a lot of love on the label, man. We got another another artist called Ben Williams, who's like a monk competition bass player, genius, wonderful guy. We made a vocal record together. He's, he's singing on this record. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. It's about the sanitation workers' strike. It's called I Am a Man. It's like a a very interesting survey of, like, black music in America and blackness in America and powerful record and, like, funky and great. And, like, I don't know, it's just, like, everything that I want when I make a piece <laughs> of work, you know? So he just had, like, yeah, at the same time, he had, like, a three-page spread and downbeat. Jose was number one in Japan. They're touring over there. And then, like, we had the Ottoman show come out on the same, like, same three days, you know? So Fire, it's all happening, man. Just trying to sleep and eat enough. You know, I think I asked you about this, um, you know, because you made a reference to uh, the Voodoo album with uh, with D'Angelo. Oh, yeah. And, you know, for me, I like music from D'Angelo and, you know, some of his contemporaries. But I also like 
I hate to say this, dude. I like a little Taylor Swift. I mean, sometimes. I hey, man. And sometimes a little Dolly Parton. I, you know I mean, I mean, I'll sing you, you know, all of Jolene yeah. right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, 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 so what is it about that sound, you know, your love of Neo Soul and just that sound, like... I can't replicate what you just did. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, yeah. but 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 as soon as you hit that beat, it struck me. You right. know what I mean? Right. You know, what is it about that sound in that process that 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 you love so much about that music? Man, I think I think we were talking about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. I think if if I could quantify that for you, then we would know how to bottle it and put it on everything as a delicious sauce for all meals. Yeah. I really have no idea. I, like, I don't know what it is that what myriad of factors combine to make one like a fan of something. But like, I don't know, for whatever reason, Voodoo is just one of those records that like for me, that's a desert. That's a top 10 forever. That's a desert island record. That's like a wedding, funeral, anything that goes. It's the goat cheese of music. It goes with everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's, <laughs> there's nothing I wouldn't want to be doing that like Voodoo wouldn't be good with. Yeah, yeah. So the goat cheese of everything. Now, hopefully, <laughs> uh, you listeners, as you're listening, hopefully you're not lactose intolerant. <laughs> I, me and my girl have a joke that goat cheese is a, is unto itself. It's like the perfect food because it can go with anything. Yeah, you can break savory, you can break sweet, yeah. you can you can do whatever you want to yeah. with it. You know, I, man, I'll slap a piece of goat cheese on just about anything. I you know what I'm saying? Know. And that to me is voodoo. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything you want, it's great in a salad. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, you know, that that in itself, what you just said is pretty profound because, you know, just getting into the science and the thinking of music, that's one of the things that we want to focus in on on this podcast is because a lot of people aren't really talking about this subject, um, about how art, music, how it just stimulates something with us. I'll hear a song by Earth, Wind and & Fire mm. and instantly it, it can be something like September. Totally. Or, you know, or something like that. And instantly it takes me back. I'm six years old, sitting in right. my in the back seat with my parents. Right. And them driving me to New Jersey as a child. Right. And what is it about that beat? What is it about that sound that resonates with you that like like stimulates you? You know, that's one of the things we we we, we want to really delve in deep right. into. You know, because we kind of feel like just thinking about that will really help inspire people, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, I love it. Well, I mean, I think music, This David Byrne writes about this in his book, um, What I Know About Music, I think is what the title is, but this is the great orange book that he put out a couple years ago. Music is contextual intrinsically, right? And especially in 2020, there's no, there's no media like kind of format that doesn't have music also. Like when was the last time you saw a commercial for television that didn't have music on it? Unless so true. you know what I mean, unless it's yeah. like a really strong decision right. about right. like they want to show the aftermath of a hurricane and the silence is deafening, you know? Right. Um so like for example, September, I mean that's just because of the context that it was placed into your life in. And so I don't know what it is about Oliver Sacks also writes about this a lot and he has a great book called Musicophilia 
which I could not ultimately get through because there's a lot of conversation around like brain injury and how mm. brain injury relates to the perception of music. Mm. And so I started bugging out about like getting hit by lightning and losing my sense of pitch and things like this. You know? <laughs> so I had to put it down, but he talks a lot about uh, brain worms and things like that, that like it's actually like fulfilling a chemical need for your brain when mm. you like become addicted to a song and you need to listen to it again and you need to listen to it again, you know? Yeah. It's like a, it's the sort of psycho spiritual equivalent of like popping a knuckle or something, you know. Uh, that, that's really neat. No, that totally <laughs> makes sense. I was, um, I don't know if Shannon told you, but my father he had a massive stroke, oh. which left him unable to speak. It was on mm. the left side of his brain. Oh wow! Oh, and wow. that was one when he could have that type of music therapy. That was the most effective therapy, right? Because it helped kind of like fix those types of wires so that's right it's really fascinating how music and your brain and all of those things are it's not just superficial it's right. really important and like unlike some visual media right like there you find specific cultural representation in certain kinds of visual media like everybody has a ceramics form but like mm-hmm. You get like Baro Negro from Oaxaca specifically or like, you know, certain Japanese techniques from Kyoto or something. And those evolve in a vacuum, like unlike maybe ceramics or other visual media where techniques evolve in the culture that they're formed and don't get shared. Like every single culture of humanity has a musical tradition. Mm -hmm. So there's something deeply human about the need to express in that way. Mm And like for thousands of years, that's been the case, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's also really interesting, too, because music in, in its current form of consumption has never been more throwaway either. Mm-hmm. You know, the way it functions in people's life, right? Like, I mean, here I am, like, we're putting out this music, we're starting a new act. And like, I'm like on the other side of it, like trying to understand what it means to gather attention, mm-hmm. gather support for a project. Like, I, I heard some just mind boggling statistic of like, Every day on iTunes, a new 400,000 songs goes up. Wow, yeah. That's, I think that's hyperbole, wow. but that's, it's something like, it's like just needles in a haystack. Wow. It's crazy. It's crazy to think yeah, that's that crazy. that's how wide and dilute the, 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 the pool is becoming, mm-hmm. you know? So it's sort of intrinsically quixotic and self-deceiving to set out to make art in that way. But like my, my homies sent me this great John Cage quote the other day. He's like, I have nothing to say and I'm saying it anyway. And you know, I, I think, I think some of that is to stand. I listen to a lot of different podcasts and one of the things that people just keep repeating about a successful podcast or a successful music group or band is that they just keep coming out with excellent content. That's it. It does not matter. Vanity Matrix, all this other stuff, Instagram, small numbers, really. It just doesn't resonate versus a song like something that you're making. I'm listening to it on my ride home from work. Right. And it resonates with me. And as a matter of fact, I hit the rewind button. Okay, how about if I hit that thing like maybe ten times on the way home? Tell all because the cool kids, I want to appreciate it. You know <laughs> I what I mean? You know, it is more than just support. It's love, man. And it's it's something about good content that really resonates with people. One of the things I was thinking on is that in our podcast, we kind of focus in on the art. Not only just the art of just painting, but creating something that is fascinating and beautiful. Uh, how is it that you get into like your creative process? What was what, what that like? I mean, for me, you know, it's funny. I'm such a deeply intellectual person. 
there's something for me when I go into the studio and I'm really working where it becomes totally ersatz. Like I'm not, it's not higher order brain function. I'm not like, you know what would be nice would be some 808s. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah, not yeah, like, yeah. it's not considered in that way. Awesome. I'm just like reaching for the eights, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. And I, maybe this is like my like latent Midwesternism in me, but like, I, I always felt like I didn't win the talent lottery. Like I'm just not, I'm just not Jimi Hendrix. I'm just not like one of those dudes. That's just like, you are incredible from jump. Like just try not to die. Just don't do so many drugs. You die. Right. <laughs> you know, that's not me. Like, right, right. so the only thing I've ever had any control over is work. Mm -hmm. I'll just put in the hours. Mm -hmm. I'll just put in work. I'm like, here I am about 40. I'm about to, I'm still hitting 80 hours every week at right. least, wow. you know? Wow. At least. And it, it like part of that is by requirement because we live in an expensive city. Part of that is by joy because I just love it. Yeah. And, you know, part of that is the sort of scarcity mentality of the freelancer. When you get the opportunity, you're like, sure, yes, please. Thanks. And I'll do it. You know, so I don't know. In terms of like actual process, I um, this is a funny, funny thing. But this was something that Russ told me. He was when we were talking about mixing, I think I was like asking him one time. I was like, what do you do when you get started on a mix? And he's like. Bro, I listen to the song, <laughs> which, you know, is a stupid thing to say, but like profound because I see so many people when they set out to mix a piece of music or when they're working on as a producer, like they just zoom into the micro before trying to understand the macro at all. And so what Russ would do would just literally be like, make a cup of coffee and like, just listen to the tune like 10 times. Yeah. Mm -hmm not do nothing like not change anything like he's not soloing anything really maybe he'd like zoom into just a specific part but he's just trying to understand what the artwork is and that's something that i've tried to really pull into my own career i've really tried to steal that from him because it just seems so profoundly obvious but i've seen like 80 percent of the people that i've ever worked with disregard that maxim mm -hmm. like before trying to understand what this thing is they're trying to place themselves inside of it right which can be great. And like a lot of the best people I think in, in art of, of any stripe are the people that have the biggest opinions and the, the biggest perspective. And I, I have myself conflated my subjective viewpoint with trying to reach objective quality for years. And that was a problem that I was having, but like there just doesn't exist. Right. there's no one that can be like, your viewpoint is valid. So just get after it, you know? So I don't know. I think process wise. Yeah. Usually what I do is just like make a cup of coffee and start listening. Yeah. And then it, inside of the process, I tend to work in spirals. So I'll kind of like, I'm sure you probably have a similar process mm -hmm. where you like, you know, you're like, oh, this eye needs a little work. And then like, I want to jump down here and work on this quadrant. And so I kind of will zoom in and zoom out. I'll be like, all right, the bass sucks. Like, let me deal with the bass. Bass is popping now, but the kick drum sucks. Like, how do I make those two things live together? Okay, great. Now they're so much louder than everything else. Like, let me turn the vocal up and get that treated in a closer place to where it is. So it's kind of like this, like, you know, sort of Nautilus shell yeah. zooming in towards what the central idea is. Yeah, he's driving a circle, people, if you can't see. <laughs> yes, <sir. laughs> A lot of well, gesticulation. Like a spherical, a spherical shape. Ideally leading towards some kind of theoretical fictitious right. center, but... Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> and then one thing we were talking about a little bit, too, is like uh, with my work, I usually start with an emotion and work backward. And mm. I would imagine with your work, that has to be extremely important, especially when you work with movies. And, Absolutely. Um, you know, with music. How, how how do you find that important in your process? Especially, like you said, you're right to point it out for filmmaking. You have I mean, music is such a bully, right? <laughs> You're like, you're the externalized presentation of the emotion that the director has in mind for the audience. Mm -hmm. 
So like, is this John Williams like giving you like a rousing space chase around the moon? Are these like robots punching each other in the face? Is this like, you know what I mean? Is this like your aunt's funeral? Like there's usually some kind of emotional subtext based on the picture and based on the narrative and dramaturgy. And so it's just left up to us to kind of intuit what part of that emotion the director wants to be feeling. Now in modern filmmaking with, with you know, non-destructive digital editing, usually a lot of times too, you'll get music that's tempted in already. Mm-hmm. That I th- is more of a TV thing in an ideal situation, especially if you're working with auteur directors, like they should just hire the people that they want their voice and like let them have their voice. But like, you know, and I hate to say it, but like for Marvel movies especially too, like there's mm-hmm. like a language that they're trying to have coherent across such a wide body of work that they're self-referentially dipping into old Marvel movies to give Mm -hmm. tap and be like, here's a direction for the scene. And so you can kind of end up getting into a place where you're like, just like making functional music, Okay, you know, where you're like, okay, this is the emotion. This is the key. These are the beats. Let me just paint by numbers, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not that fun, but you know, in the in the right context with the with the right director, it's just the best to be a bully mm-hmm. like that. You mm-hmm. can you can make someone standing in a hallway the most terrifying thing that ever happened mm-hmm. in an unquantifiable way because of some ticky tacky weird little sound that comes in the <laughs> rear channel, you know. Yeah. So fun. So how much of it is science do you would you say and how much of it is just really intuitive? Ooh, that's a great question. I mean, again, like I'm so intellectualized in my daily life that I try to just really go fully like endocrine system. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there it's like anything where you're building a language of techniques, right? Like mm-hmm. all of those things that you've like studied, any of these, like the marbling thing that you were showing yeah. me, that's like a beautiful thing that you know how to do. And so anytime you need to do that, you can just do it. Mm-hmm. And I would say that like... In macro, like these are all sort of confirmation bias things. Mm -hmm. Like you've known that it worked previously in this other context. You can like repurpose it and kind of bring it forward. So in that way, yeah, I'm like a really, really nerdy close up magician. Like I just have like a whole bunch of tricks in my pockets. (laughs) You know what I mean? And you're like, let's try this trick. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, for me anyway, I've always found a lot of interest in like perceptual sciences Mm -hmm. too. So I've like studied psychoacoustics a little Mm -hmm. bit and like gotten down that rabbit hole. Mm And like bringing some of those things that are super, super informational and mathematically based into the right brains playland mm-hmm. can be really fun. Wow. Um, I had a weird ask from a friend. We were doing this song and there was like a bridge and it was about bees. And he wanted this moment where it like the sound of a bee starts super mono, like really in the center channel and then like overwhelms your head. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought about it for a second. I was like, uh Okay, cool. And then, like, you know, based on his ask, I was able to kind of, like, work backwards into a technical sort of left-brain way to realize that. Right. But then you don't, like, in its inception, you just feel this, like, swarm of bees in circle yeah. your head, you know, which yeah. is a fun thing. That totally makes sense. It's kind of like, like we were talking a little bit, too, about color theory and how you know, certain colors generally psychologically make people feel certain things. But, you know, I feel like the science can be like a skeleton. Right. And then you have to build on top of that and you have to experiment. And then I kind of like what you were, we were talking about a little bit, like sometimes people take that 
and then they kind of chop it up and do the opposite, right. which may even come to be even a, sh- a stronger, exactly stronger uh, situation. Yeah, yeah, you get like a, a second layer of understanding sometimes mm-hmm. through a, through that, you know. I mean, and again, like I can relate this back to hip hop too. It's like the the sort of sampling mentality. Mm-hmm. And for example, like the the musical sophistication that Dilla had to have to even be able to find some of those samples, yes. it's like there's a whole Titanic sinking iceberg under there that nobody even needs to be bothered by. But like that's how that's just how deep his width of experience and, to, and knowledge goes, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's awesome, uh, Brian. Uh, why do you think? I know this is a basic question, but why do you think the arts? in music are like a necessity. You know, something that we're finding is, is like in the schooling system, for instance, they're not really supporting a lot of the things when it comes to the arts. Maybe it's because of finance or what have you. And we don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But really, why do you think art and music are like a necessity? It's not just optional. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, we're so far into post-capitalism in this country. Like if they just want to, if they wanted to find the money, they just have it. They just need to re- reappropriate. You know what I mean? Like what's that plane, the F-30 or something? Have you guys followed this down at all? There's like a, there's like a new update for the bomber jet that like America has been building. And it's, it's like they're up at like $5 trillion and the thing is like slower than the plane they're trying to beat. It's unsafe. You know what I mean? Like it's flawed from the inception and they're still throwing money at this fire. Don't talk to me about, you can't buy those kids recorders. You know what I mean? Like that's just a, that's just a simple failing of humanism. Why is it important? I don't know, man. I mean, that's like how to, how to quantify that. I, I am a person that I have a difficult time maybe like, expressing my emotions in an external way. Like I can really intellectualize things and understand why I'm upset or why I'm happy or joyful or whatever. Like I can like really get into the left brain and tell you why that is. But like, there's just nothing. I mean, yeah, man, what? Like we've all had that moment where you just hear the right piece of music on the right day and you Mm just are like reduced to tears or like you want to like have that one song in the playlist that you know is the slow dance at the wedding or like, it's just these moments in your life that that become for me like these are my strongest memories you know like do you know that curtis mayfield song so in love oh please do you know what i'm saying (laughs) yeah you know what i mean and like just like even just saying those words like i could see your shoulders relax you're like immediately like at that picnic right now you know what i mean and so i don't know I, i just think like First of all, I think it's the most important and most beautiful thing that people can do with their lives. Like, that's the most important thing. And I think it's the most real way to actually communicate mm-hmm. anything to, to people. You know, we all have these sort of semantic shared understandings of what these words that we're using are. But, like, it's like showing someone a picture of an apple or trying to describe to them what it looks like, you know. Yeah, yeah. Letting them taste the apple or writing a treatise on what smell is, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's all, that makes sense too. I'm kind of like what you're saying. It's kind of I always think about my father too because he still has all his intelligence. Right. He just doesn't have the words anymore. Right. And just like what you were saying with that right side, that usually the creative. That's where we work our music and that part of our brain. Right. And so it totally makes sense that we wouldn't necessarily have the words to 
really quantify why it's important. But um, one of the things that I look at are people's reaction. What does music move people to do? Exactly. And that kind of shows, like, that really, like, illustrates the power that it can have. That's right. What are some of the things that you've seen as far as, like, people's reaction to your music from the movies or from some of your other projects that you've worked on? That's a great question. I I, um, I tend to more towards like historically I've been what they call below the line, you know, so I'm not like in front of the project. I'm not the face of a project. I'm not like the artist on a project. So I have a, I, I have a lot of anonymity in my personal life, which I value a lot. And uh, anyway, that all that is to say that I was recently, our label through a stage at a Winter Jazz Festival in New York this this past month, and we had like six hours of performers, Keon Harold, Anissa Strings, Jose, Ben Williams, and a great singer called Jay Horde and Talia. And uh, it was great. We did a panel ahead of time as well. Yeah, so I was, you know, I'm one of the three founders of this label. Like I was speaking at the panel. I produced all the records that were on display, but nobody knows who I am, which is great. And well preferable for me frankly but also i had like a really interesting opportunity in that moment to like get people's unvarnished reactions to the night Mm -hmm. you know what i mean it takes a lot of guts yeah (laughs) and it was like yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah, well well said but it was a really cool first of all maybe i'm telling the story because we were only getting love (laughs) but yeah it was really it was really a special thing to like really feel you know because i'm usually just in the studio man i'm just like Mm -hmm. Trying to check my email and send mixes and stuff. So to be connected in the situation to the community in that way was so beautiful for me. And like, yeah, it like gave me context for the stuff in a way that I don't often get because you know how it is. Like you finish the project, you've already got the email about the next one, you've sent the deliverables. So there's no moment to rest. There's no moment to celebrate it. There's no moment to understand its cultural context. You're just sending the next email, you know? Right, right, right. Um, but this was a great moment where I got to see on just like in a very basic level, like at the ground floor, individual fans reactions to, to this to this moment. And that was really special. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. So did they come up? Did people make comments about it? Were they dancing? Or it- yeah. I mean, the show <laughs> was sold out. Wow. It was there was a line down the block. I heard this woman say, like, I come to a lot of shows here and I have never seen it this busy, you know, like uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff where, like, if they knew I was in the cut, like, I think they would have been a little bit more guarded about it. But just because I'm some random dude in the crowd, they're like, yeah, we'll just keep our conversation popping, you know. Um, And I've, you know, I've had some moments like I've gotten to tell Russ in no uncertain terms that it's because of voodoo that I make the music that I make and and have the the life that I do. And, you know, that was that was we had a great bonding moment over that. And I've I've had the benefit of that also from some other people. Right. Like people reaching out about like X or Y project and being Mm -hmm. like, yo, this changed my life in this way. And like. Mm That's, I mean, that's why we all do it, right? Is to to like try to share some of our our context of being alive in a way that feels understood by the by the audience. Right. right. And, and you know, I was just talking to a, a musician. He actually was. We got a chance to go to Freeze, oh yeah, L.A. last week, and the musician. Um, I think he actually was one of the curators at one of the galleries. Oh, cool. And I got into a discussion with him on his interaction as he's playing the bass or the guitar and with the audience. And he mentioned like, even he can feel the energy from the crowd, like him just turning to the side and not even looking at the crowd. He could 
fill that energy with the people like staring at them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, those are some of the things that we want to dig up. Like, have you ever felt that, or of have course, you? Yeah. What's that like? I mean, I played in bands for years, and you just—it's like the most wonderful. You just like tap in. You can become a junkie for that stimulus. You just yeah. tap into this wonderful collective uh, intention. I mean, it's like an ecstatic experience, right? Like we don't have, I'm, I'm an atheist, so I I don't like have the church experience. I don't have that collective energy. I'm not a sports fan. So I'm not like getting that vicarious collective energy. Mm -hmm. There are no like arena pit fights in our culture. So there's (laughs) not that version of collective energy. You know what I mean? So like musical performance is one of those, the the ways in which that kind of collective expression of excitement and, And what I mean, angst, if you're at the right show or sexiness at the right show, whatever, you know, that's usually how that takes its form for me. You know, I love it. You know, here you're talking about energy and, you know, and I show we talk about how our work is affecting others. I know Leah, she 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 kind of touched on this a little bit. Have you heard of how maybe your music, how it's had an impact on maybe other people's life? Well, again, because I'm kind of in this weird place where I'm like behind the behind the scenes a little bit, like not not a lot, but that's kind of great. Like I I think the most important thing that I've been able to get from that is the the sense of the artist that I'm working with, right? Like all of my work, all of the business that I'm doing comes directly from the artists in my life. Like I'm not like nice with the A&R relationships. I don't mm-hmm. care. I'm not like, I'm not trying to like break the next Taylor Swift. I'm, that's not my yeah. hustle, you know? Hey, so. uh, uh, shout out to Taylor. <laughs> right. Taylor, no if you doubt. ever want to get on the show, we, we, we'd warmly welcome you. <laughs> my, my you homie, Dolly Parton. <laughs> <laughs> my homie Laura Sisk actually is her engineer. She's a awesome. genius. Oh, yeah, we have wonderful. To with her. Yeah, yeah, she's great. You love her. She's close by here too. Um, but all that is to say that I'm not playing that game. Yeah. And a lot of people are. So it's it's left me the opportunity to just be a little bit more choosy and a little bit more left of center. Mm-hmm. And so as a consequence of that, like I've been able to really build these relationships that span, you know, north of five records, north of 10 records and really be a part of these people's artistic development and and artistic identity in a way that feels really important. And like a like maybe the most important part of my legacy to me, Mm -hmm. you know, to be able to be helpful to someone like Chris Bowers, you know, Mm -hmm. to be able to be helpful in his development. Well, you know, I'm just going to tell you, your music has had an impact on me. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know how that makes you forever. I'm, I'm nobody. But um, I, disagree, I disagree very strongly. I think that's a, that's a minimizing perspective. I mean, look, like at the end of the day, like there's nothing amorphous about fandom. It's like one person. You need to you need to make one person excited right. about what you do. Right. You know, and then you need to do that again a lot. Right. <laughs> you right. know, right. But you need to like, you need to have that moment where you're like, do you remember? And you're going across the <laughs> pip or whatever. Yeah, and you're yeah. like on your way to your aunt's house, yeah. you know, and then like forever. Right. You'll just boop, we do, dee, dee, do, yeah. dee, do, do, dee, do, dee, you know, and you, like, you'll Amazing. be in there forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
All right. <laughs> that is going to be the sound bite for this show. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. All right. I have this problem where I sing the whole arrangement. Yeah. So, like, instead of, like, singing the hook top line, which is the way most people will relate to music, I'll be like, oh, yeah, you know that Sly Stone song, Small Talk, and it starts with, like, the baby. You know, and, like, I'll just, like, sing the whole arrangement yeah. from what the most perceived important voice is, and it's really a crazy thing. So sorry, and you're welcome, audience. No, yeah, yeah. You know, that's that, that's that's dope, because actually I was going to ask you if we could somehow listen to some of your creative process. So, hey, great. <laughs> yeah, the unvarnished, <laughs> the most unvarnished version of it. Yeah, right. right, right. <laughs> hey, man, well, this is awesome, man. You turning that studio into like a real studio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we appreciate that, bro. I would say another part of maybe my creative process that I'm just kind of unpacking now is to to just try to just take as much inspiration from any source as possible. Mm-hmm. Mixed media, like, I mean, a couple years ago, I just, like, stopped following any record labels. And, like, I'm just following visual artists on Instagram. You know, I don't don't really care that much of what X A and r is up to, like, or who Pitchfork thinks is cool. Like, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm." I'll find out if it's really true, you know? Um, So, yeah, just finding ways to, to pull inspiration from even, like, even inside of music from... Things that you're maybe not idiomatically trying to recreate, like maybe I don't need to try and make music like Philip Glass, but because I have that in my ears, there's a way that I can bring that into the music that I am making. And I think that's part of what makes Bright and Guilty interesting is because it's like Dennis and I both have such a width of, of influence. And like, even if that stuff isn't directly on display, even if you're not like, I know how to make stained glass. So let me make a stained glass window to put in this thing. Like, because you know about leaded glass, like you, it's still, that knowledge is still under the surface a little bit, you know? Oh, it's good. That's what I was thinking. It's just kind of like, yeah, I feel that way too. It's kind of like crossing over just sharpens you exactly. in a different way. And you can pull from it. You're not pulling from the same experience as everybody else has. Exactly. Because you're uh, going into other mediums. That's right. Yeah. And I think even like um, things that are directly complementary, but are like more sort of corollary disciplines can even in, in, inform one another. Like, like all the sound design work, that's not musical at all quote unquote air fingers but like the expression of it can be very musical like the what does it sound like when a robot punches another robot on the moon (laughs) nobody knows so you get to define it you know what i mean is it like uh, is there a preceding whoosh are we playing with the idea of any kind of atmosphere Mm. you know like Mm. and so those kinds of things like Maybe even the way I'm using plugins and in, in sound design or the way I'm like being more cavalier with distortion or something like even like some pro tool shortcuts or mentalities like workflow things mm-hmm. loath though I am to use that word can be taken back into music or vice versa, you know, like there's some intrinsic pacing understandings mm-hmm. and like the golden ratios that we get working in visual fields or in musical fields that like maybe are understood subconsciously, but not like applied to the rubric of making sound design. Mm-hmm. So here are these things that are subconsciously just a part of who you are as an artist and as a person that all gets put into all the work, even if it's not directly, you know, on display. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I even enjoyed when you were mentioning earlier before we started the recording mm-hmm. about how even you knew of some people that had made scores for one part of a movie right. or for something else. But then by that just experimentation, by playing it next to different scenes, how it actually made 
for a stronger emotional. Right. Yeah. Right. So that, that was specifically, that was in, uh, lemon and Janixa Bravo's movie, Heather Christian wrote all this, wrote the score and, uh, she like wrote a, a generated a huge pile of it before she saw principal photography. Mm-hmm. And so all this was based off of a dramaturgical understanding of the film. It's like a, Heather's like a genius high art person. So she was like, oh, this is like a retelling of the seagull. Here are the important structural moments. Like she like ripped it apart from a dramaturgical perspective in a way that is just so brilliant. So she wasn't, she didn't really need to see the movie to write music that was like thematic. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then Janixa got all of these pieces and like kind of put them into the film as she saw fit, as opposed to how Heather saw like in Inception, what those pieces were for. And so that made an intellectual layer of disconnection between the emotion that was on display on on film and the emotion that was on offer in the music, Mm -hmm. which this movie is incredibly uncomfortable. Mm And that just like added a, a huge layer of discomfort in a way that wasn't immediately like obvious, but felt in a very obvious way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's real interesting because when we talk about art, art itself is an emotional thing. That's why when you see a piece of art, it just resonates with you. It does something to you. Like I think we were talking last week on a podcast about Uh, This new mural that just went up Mm. um, a few weeks back. If you're listening to this podcast, last month, Kobe Bryant just died. And he died with his daughter and nine of the passengers. And, you know, it just has a tremendous impact on the city of Los Angeles. And just by having this mural up, um, Legends Forever, you know, by Royal Dog. We'll put put the link in 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 the notes. But... You know, I was just passing by and I was seeing people interact with the piece of art. You know, it just gives them like a sense of I know mainly in this podcast, we're talking about music. But with any form of art, it just resonates with people. They can just stop. And it almost it's almost like it heals them. That's right. I don't know. Could you expand on that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think especially with Kobe, because it was such a left field thing. And he's like so brilliantly entering what's going to be his second act. That that's like a, a re, it was felt really strongly in the culture, and you know I, I've been lucky enough to do some work with Kobe over the years too. So yeah, we're gonna expand on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I met the Mamba man. The Mamba was super cool. Yeah, um, and uh, so I think there's like a huge feeling of loss of potential energy, which especially in the Black American community in 2020 is like felt in a very mm-hmm. strong way, and like with Nipsey too, like. There are a couple of paragons of the black community in Los Angeles that have right. have both fallen this year. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think you know, there's a look. There are some great like commonalities across the human experience and grief and the inability to kind of deal with your own impotence and that kind of uh, forever loss. Yeah. It, I mean, that's one of the most wonderful functions of art, right? It's like an externalized third-party version of your emotional experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Brian helped uh, do some of the uh, composition for the uh, music uh, with the... I think it was kind of like... How, how would you describe that? Was it like a uh, autobiography or... Oh, yeah. So uh, I did not write any of the music. I, that I just recorded and mixed. Okay. The music for that was written by my friend Chris Bowers, right. who's a wonderful composer. I, we Jose introduced me to him and called him Young Genius when we met, and I, to this day, call him Young Genius, even though he's in his 30s. 
It's my strong assertion that Chris Bowers is our generation's Quincy Jones. Like I'm waiting for his TV project. You know what I mean? Um, so Chris wrote the music for that. And that was one of his first like big break film scores. And uh, yeah, I got to record a lot of it. We did a string day at the Village Recorder that Kobe came through for. And it was so sweet. I mean, there was like a, you know, a small chamber ensemble, maybe like 10 piece string section. And like before every cue, he would go in and give like a dramaturgical setting. He would be like, this is in this scene. We're talking about my dad and his career in Italy, my childhood being a little dispossessed and like following him around these Italian cities and learning Italian. And I didn't see that man get on his phone one time. Mm. Wow. In six hours, which for someone that's as, as busy and obviously in demand as he is, I thought that presence was an incredible display because I sure know that I got on my phone during that session. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was very, he was engaging with everyone. He was asking me pro tools questions. He was super generous. Mm. Him and Chris became very close. They were texting on the regular, like, uh. He introduced Chris to John Williams because Kobe's a Kobe was a huge film score fan and like a huge John Williams nut. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I think to me it really comes down to loss of opportunity, right? Because this guy was really doing a huge amount of good for the community. He was like putting in work globally, and he had this second act in this media company that was beginning. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking about the impact that obviously, you know, like you said, you didn't write the music. You helped record uh, some of the so, some of the music. But the mm -hmm. thing is, is that that project on Netflix or wherever it is, people are looking at that thing and people are having some type of form of closure, you know, with, you know, with this loss. Right. But what would you kind of wrapping things up? Uh, what would you like the audience to know about the music that you're producing and the impact that you want to have on your particular audience? Wow, these are such cool questions. Yeah, 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 yeah right off the top. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like, yeah, it's, it's, it's you right, too bad it's you're not like right GoPro on this because yeah, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> you'd see my quizzical expression. Yeah. Gosh, I don't know that I've ever really given it that much consideration. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, let me frame this in maybe an allegory. So when we went to we Lemon, the movie, the movie I was talking about, about Heather and Janix's process of respotting the film, that went to Sundance and we went out with it. And I, it was like one of my first times to Sundance and like one of my first like bigger indie movies. So I was like stoked to read the reviews and like really check out what people were saying about it. And like, you know, I don't know, Variety or Hollywood Reporter, one of the big ones came to this showing and they got the name of one of the principals wrong. They got the oh, name yeah. of the main character wrong. And then that kind of disillusioned me for the whole thing. Like, I won't lie. Like, I'm vain. I'm a, I'm like a maker. I'm subject to the, all that vanity. I wanted. I want the the recognition that we all want, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I was hoping to maybe like in the format of these reviews, like find some of that comfort or find some of that ego salving or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. And they had the name of the main character wrong, and I was like, nobody knows what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody knows what they're doing. This, yeah. this person's job was it's to go to this movie and just take some clean notes and then write about this movie. And like, if their perspective was so fundamentally limited that they couldn't even get the name of the main character right, then why am I paying attention to anything else that they have to say? Mm -hmm. You know, and that like, in a larger way, also when I look around my life and I look at the makers whose work that I appreciate, it's the people that are going after their own inspiration with as little fear as possible whose work that I care about. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what I'm interested in. I wanna, if I can like 
if I could give the opportunity to say like, oh, that weirdo is doing weird stuff. Let me make my life about weird stuff, too. Right, right, right. Like that is the best outcome is to just to make some other music junkie lifers. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking when you were talking about, you know, that's the thing, too. It's like when you're trying to make art, if you're thinking about like accolades or like these big people that you're trying to impress, yep. it just... It's just it's not necessarily going to make for good art. It doesn't work that way, does it? Mm-mm. But if you come from a place, I feel like what you're saying is like if you come from a place of just being trying to be as genuine as you can, then people are going to connect to that. Exactly. You know what I mean? Because they're going to feel like somebody else empathizes with them. That's right. And that's I feel like when you're talking about the artists that you help you represent and the type of work that you do and that you're interested in, I feel like that's what you're saying. I feel like that's why you have the success that you have. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's funny, like, especially like we didn't speak about mixing very much, but like mm-hmm. one of the things that I really find interesting about mixing is that it's like a, obviously it's a very technical job at the end of the day and you're mm-hmm. taking all the disparate, discrete recorded elements and you're adding them together into a stereo file that can go into the world. And like, if you express it that way, it's just some like really banal technical thing. But actually, in my opinion, it's the last emotional interpretation mm-hmm. of a piece of music. You know, it's the last chance to heighten the drama. It's the last chance to, like, make the party bigger. It's the last chance to make the pathos deeper, you know. And done right, it's it's seamless. You're not like, wow, this is a great mix and I feel so much sadder for it, you know. But, like, it just, again, it's one of those things that just intrinsically speaks to something in the human condition when, it, when it's right, you know. You know, finally, I, I want to talk about you and this thing with ceramics, man. Oh yeah, like, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, because I've been watching some of these. I've been I've been seeing you in the studio, bro, and uh, I've seen some of these Japanese cups and mm-hmm. some of these teapots uh, that you've been making. Uh, what is that feeling like when you're creating something? You know, with your hands. You know, here you're a musician. You play what? You told me like five different five instruments. instruments yeah. Okay, people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not well. Yeah. I'm not like Bernard Purdy uh, and humble, humble too. All right. So <laughs> here you are. And now you're taking on ceramics. So, you know, what's that all about? How'd you get into that? That is a pure expression of joy. That was because me and my girl were looking for something to do together. We don't have like a lot of shared hobbies. And so we were just like, what can we do? Like what fun thing that we both will be interested in that's interdisciplinary for us. It's not like in either of our wheelhouses. Can we just get out of our own context a little bit with? And so we, I know Sasha for years because we did a record, um, her mother exec produced a record for a singer named Crystal Warren, whom you guys would check out. You should check out because she's amazing. Definitely. She's like a Kansas City singer, songwriter, just like voice of a generation level. Unbelievable. And so Sasha's mom, Joelle, was producing a record for Crystal that I ended up recording and mixing. And we just met through that context. And then, yeah, I guess we were hanging out here maybe six months or a year ago or something. And it finally was revealed to us that Sasha is like a master level potter. Yeah. And so Julie just set it up. She's like, all right, let's go do a class with Sasha. Let's do like a bowl in one class. And so we did. And both just like fell very much in love with it because it's the exact opposite of what I do. Mm-hmm. You get something, you get immediate physical force feedback. It's pragmatic. Mm-hmm. It's tangible. You get you get something you can eat a bowl of pasta out of after the fact. You know what I mean? Right. right. Uh, it's low stakes. Yeah. 
There's no, uh, you know what I mean? There's yeah. no intellectualized conversation about why what you're doing isn't the right thing to do. You just like either like it or you don't, Yeah. you know? And so in that way, it's just been, I also like for in as much as my career is so wide, I have never done anything interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. It's always been something that I can repurpose back into my music stuff. Mm-hmm. And so this for me is just like a pure expression of joy. Like I said, it's just like something fun. I'm not trying to do anything with it. I'm not trying to get anything out of it. It's just a joyful act. Man, well, you know, the stuff that you're creating is amazing. Bro. Oh, man. Thank you. I may even have to cop some stuff off of you in a little bit. But Brian, you're just an excellent human being. Bro. <laughs> just uh, throughout, man. Um It's been a privilege and an honor to have you onto the show, man. Well, likewise. And and once again, people, this is one of our first shows. We get to have him on it. Maybe in the future, man, maybe we can link up and, you know, hit a uh, round two. Say word. Round two with you. Or or maybe even with some of your homies, too. So, yeah, definitely. Thank you so much, Brian. That was such an interesting interview with Bender. I really appreciate in the interview how he talked about how music and art, when you hear a song, for instance, how it can just like take you back in time and bring up all these different memories that you may have when you first heard that song. And I really enjoyed how he takes all of that experience and he has this process where the bones of the project and then that intuition that he has brings those bones to life and puts all the flesh and etc over the bones to really make that project work. Now we mentioned earlier that Bender was working on a very special project because he's seen that some of his colleagues they want to offer free audio services to people of color ranging from audio forensics to podcast production to mixing to music production. He even has a 5.1 surround scene so he can basically offer theatrical mixes for films and documentaries. So if you're interested in getting in contact with him, just scroll down below and check out much of his information in the show's notes. And when you get to the show's notes, you're going to notice a number of different things. For instance, Bender is working with the record label Rainbow Blonde Records. He's also working with his partner, Dennis, with Bright and Guilty. So you'll see links to both of those uh, record labels. You'll also see a link to Jose James's new album. It is phenomenal, people definitely give us i want to give a special shout out to jose james he's doing some phenomenal music over at rainbow blonde records and we know there are a lot of things that you could be doing and a lot of ways you could be spending your time but you're here with us and we really appreciate it from the bottom of our hearts so thank you for being here with us at vessel art is a doorway Microphone check, one, two, one, two. The five foot assassin with the roughneck business.